break that yoke of bondage. You know, it really does. I love what she said. Sometimes it's through the tears and through the struggles. But as we remain faithful to praise God for his goodness and his character, uh, that praise brings us into his presence and will break that bondage that's in our life. So we need to be people of praise. Amen? Okay, well, we've been studying Amos, this uh, often neglected Old Testament book. You know, frankly, there's not a lot of sermons preached from Amos, yet I've really been encouraged in the last few weeks. And it's been a time of, as Pastor Darth articulated a couple weeks ago, a time of growth. These are opportunities for us to grow in the Lord. And I also just want to thank all of you. It's been a very a lot of positive feedback about this uh, series. It's been kind of about the judgment of God, but we need to hear about that side of God too. He's a loving God, but he's also a, a just God. You know, one of the things that we have seen displayed throughout Amos is the holiness of God. We need to remember that. We need to fear God. We need to remember that he is just in all he does. And as broken people, as flawed people, we need to see that. We can justify a lot of stuff in our own mind, but it's not justified in the mind of a holy, just God. Now, secondly, we've seen as we've worked through our series, God's great regard for the marginalized, for the disfranchised, for the vulnerable. And we need to hear that because as Americans, this great prosperous country that we live in, we're comfortable. And we need to be reminded through God's word that there are vulnerable, broken, and needy people all around us. And the book of Amos, friends, reminds us that God cares deeply for those outside the church, outside of our political preferences, outside of our ethnicity. And he is watching us to see how we are going to respond. We who live in luxury, how are we going to respond to all the needs around us? Now, Amos was given three visions of doom and gloom. And those visions were not directed just toward others. They were primarily directed toward the people of Israel. And Amos relayed those messages very clearly. We've, you know, read some of them. Didn't pull any punches. And today we're going to see God's final response to the sins of his people. Now, what were the sins of his people? We really haven't specified that. And I think it's important before we go any further. What were the sins that God was so upset about in the day of Amos, and probably is pretty upset about in the day that we live in. Well, first of all, as we've read through these chapters, we have noticed their material prosperity created in them this sense of false security. They thought, well, we've got our bank accounts, our economy's good, we're at peace with everyone. They began to rely upon their prosperity and their abundance and their process. 
their governmental process. Friends, never rely upon the government before you rely upon God. He is our God. He is the one who is leading his kingdom. His kingdom is not a nation. His kingdom is every single one of us who have accepted Christ as his or her savior. You can be persecuted in North Korea today. You are part of the kingdom of God, just as we who serve in the United States in an area of abundance and freedom, we are also a member of the family of God. Secondly, the people had fallen into moral perversity. Now, the United States have fallen morally in the last 50 years. We understand that. We're not to the point that they were in the New Testament, but we're heading in that direction. And all of a sudden, instead of being a light to the world, they began to live the same way the nations lived that, that surrounded them. They began to follow gods and practices of the culture. Now that could be a sports idol, that could be a Hollywood idol, that could be a political idol, that could be a number of things. We all have things in our life that become idolatrous if we're not careful. And the third sin that Amos really keys in on is religious hypocrisy. Remember a few weeks ago, they were doing all the right things. They talked about how much they loved the Lord and they spent time worshiping the Lord and serving him. But at the same time, they had allowed other gods and idols into their life. And God looked at that and he called it what it is, hypocrisy. So those were the three main sins that Amos pinpointed in the life of the Israelites. And in all honesty, <laughs> we'll admit those three sins are alive and well in American Christianity today. We have a lot of material prosperity. We have become a part of a culture in which the holiness of God reveals how far we've really fallen. And at times, our experiences, our church involvement incorporates hypocrisy. See, many of the past few years have left the teachings of Jesus to follow other ideas, other um, agendas, uh, other movements. See, the teachings of Christ are really, really hard. It's hard to love your enemy. It's hard to give up your rights in order to love someone else and serve someone else. But the cross shows us that's our example. That's what Jesus did for us. Today we're going to skim chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. I didn't want to read all four chapters to you. I didn't think you wanted me to do that. We're even going to part of nine, but we need to get through this series before the end of the month. 
So uh, we're going to skim chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. There's a lot in the chapters, including the three visions. Yet all of these visions and all of these words point to one thing. And it's something that we refer to and Amos referred to as the day of the Lord. And maybe you've heard that. God says the end of Israel was coming. They better change before it's too late because the end was not going to be pretty. The end is near. And that's the title of my message today. The end is near. We're going to see the importance of not only looking back to the past days of the Lord, but we need to keep the perspective, friends. We need to look forward also to the future day of the Lord that is still going to take place. So we're dealing with the day of the Lord in the past and the day of the Lord in the future. I'll explain that more as we go on. Right now, turn to Amos chapter 5 in your Bible. I want to read the first six verses. Amos chapter 5 is our text this morning. Listen, you people of Israel. Listen to the funeral song I am singing. The virgin Israel has fallen, never to rise against, uh, again. She lies abandoned on the ground with no one to help her up. The sovereign Lord says, when a city sends a thousand men to battle, only a hundred will return. When a town sends a hundred, only ten will come back alive. Now this is what the Lord says to the family of Israel. Come back to me and live. God is always calling us back to him. And he always has abundant life for us. Don't worship at the pagan altars at Bethel. Don't go to the shrines at Gilgal or Beersheba. For the people of Gilgal will be dragged off into exile. The people of Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Come back to the Lord and live. Otherwise, he will roar through Israel like a fire, devouring you completely. Your gods in Bethel won't be able to quench the flames. The end is near. We've heard that in the church for a lot of years. My grandfather, back in the 1960s, had large, like plywood-sized signs in his front yard that said, repent, the end is near. It's a fact. But it's not just within the church we hear that. Our culture is infatuated with the idea of the end of the world. You might have neighbors. You might have friends. You might have coworkers. They don't know anything from a biblical perspective, but you see it in the movies coming out from Hollywood. You see it in books. You know, the Christian books in the past few decades, many of just more fictionalized books, but have dealt with the end of the world. We're infatuated by Armageddon and how everything wraps up. And back in Amos' day, the people were also infatuated, looking forward to what they call the day of the Lord. We see that later on in the chapter. Look at uh, verse 18. What sorrows await you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here? I've been guilty of that. <laughs> Saying, man, if only, if only God would come quickly, if only Christ would come. 
You have no idea what you're wishing for, the Bible says. That day will bring darkness, not light. In that day, you will be like a man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. (laughs) Don't think I want to meet either one, actually. Escaping from the bear, he leans his hand against a wall in his house, and there he's bitten by a snake. Yes, the day of the Lord will be dark and hopeless without a ray of joy or hope. Verse 21, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. Now think about it in the lens of the Israelites. The day of the Lord to them was when God would come down and would decisively deal with their enemies, their physical enemies, other nations, other people groups, other religions. What they were dreaming about and believed was coming was a day in the near future that God would destroy their enemies. And if you read through Amos 5, 6, 7, and 8, God did promise to bring the day of the Lord. But listen, here's the surprise. It wasn't a time that he was coming to oppose their enemies. It was a time that he would be coming against them. Ouch. We pray that God would destroy all those other evil religions. We pray God would destroy those nations that have come against our nation. Are we missing the point as the people in Amos did? Then maybe God's more concerned about us right now. He wants to bring his holiness and his justice into our life. So let's talk about this day of the Lord. I think it's really important because it is mentioned over 80 times in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? 80 times. And it always seems to refer to a singular event. The day of the Lord. Not the week of the Lord Not the time of the Lord's judgment, but the day of the Lord. It always seems to refer to the singular event. But here's the catch. We can't assume that the day of the Lord that we read about in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord in the past, when God did bring destruction, not only upon Israel, but upon his enemies, we can't assume that that is the same day of the Lord that we need to be fearful of in the future. So there's many days of the Lord. Uh, let me give you a couple examples. In Genesis, we see this big event, cataclysmic event called the flood. Most of you are aware of that. Noah and the ark, God looked down at humanity And the Bible records that he says, man, every inclination of these people's hearts are to do evil. And he regretted making man. And he decided to destroy man. Did he do it overnight? No. 120 years. He gave people a chance to repent. 
for 120 years, he gave warning. We see another day of the Lord in Genesis 19, the Sodom of Sodom or the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. God brought the day of judgment upon two cities because of their serious sins. Part of it was sexual immorality. But the Bible is real clear in Exodus 16. And I want you to, to hear this because it ties back to the sins of Amos and perhaps the sins that we're committing that we're not even aware of today. Exodus 16 says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant. You see any pride in the American church today? They were overfed. See any abundance and prosperity in the American church today? And they were unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. That's why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Yes, God was unhappy with the sexual immorality, but the word says it's their arrogance. They were overfed and they didn't help the marginalized. They didn't help those who were poor, who were needy. Verse 50 of Exodus 16 says, They were haughty. They did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you've seen. That was a day of the Lord. We see a day of the Lord in Exodus. We know the day of the Lord was coming upon what nation? Egypt. Because Egypt for hundreds of years enslaved God's people. There was another day of the Lord in Joshua 6. God brought judgment on a single city, the city of Jericho. Now, all these stories that I've just recounted, whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah or Jericho, or Amos knew that the people he was addressing knew those stories. Those had all happened before this proclamation of, of Amos. So that's why he said to them, a day of the Lord is about to take place, but this time it won't be against your enemies, it's going to be against you. So with that foundational work, let's move to what we learn about the day of the Lord in the New Testament. We hear that phrase. Here the Bible speaks exclusively, again, about a singular, particular time in the future. We've not experienced it. The singular day when Jesus Christ will inaugurate his kingdom by coming in triumph to the earth. Hallelujah. Man, that's going to mark the end of the present age of history. And it's going to unroll the beginning of eternity. And Jesus is going to come not riding on a donkey like he did into Jerusalem to face the cross, the Bible says in Revelation, he's going to be riding on a white stallion and he's going to be carrying a sword to destroy the enemies once and for all. And he will establish his rule, not the rule of any singular nation, but his rule over all creation. And it's going to be something that's going to be crystal clear to all of us when it happens. Man, we need to realize when Amos speaks of the day of the Lord and when Peter speaks of the day of the Lord, they're talking about two different things. 
So this is where we have to be really careful. We have to be students of the word. We have to understand that. When Amos was speaking of the day of the Lord, he is speaking of something past, and it did come to pass. But when Peter, when Paul were speaking of the day of the Lord, they're talking about something that is going to happen in the future. In fact, in the New Testament, Peter addresses the day of the Lord in 2 Peter. If you have your Bible, turn there. 2 Peter, this is where he talks about the day of the Lord. It's chapter number three, where he says, I want to remind you, you know, in the last days, scoffers are going to come. They're going to mock the truth and follow their own desires. Beginning with verse 11, he says, um, man, these numbers are getting smaller every week. It's about time for a larger print Bible, I think. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise. And the very elements themselves will disappear in fire. And the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. What holy and godly lives we should live. Man, that's going to be a terrible day. The earth as we know it will be burned up. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth in God's kingdom. Now, you might be here today and you say, well, I don't understand you tell us that God is a loving God and a gracious God. And now you're telling us that God is going to come and destroy everything. I, I just want you to know, friends, yes, God has a loving nature. That's why he warns us. That's why he gives us these moments of grace. But just because he's a God of love, hear me, does not negate his other attributes of justice of holiness, of righteous wrath. Man, if we have a, a, a fully biblical view of God, we're going to realize that he is angry because of our sin. Not angry at us, angry at what the sin is doing to us, and his justice will not allow that sin to go undealt with. He loves us too much. In fact, Amos wrote these words along those lines in uh, verse number 24 of Amos 5, verse 24. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteousness. Now, in the NIV, it says, but let justice roll on like a river. That is the one verse that I use to create this entire series. That's why the series is called Let Justice Roll. Because the NIV, it says, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's God's heart. God is looking for that day when his righteous justice will be revealed in the final hours of history. 
And you and I have this open invitation right now to his love and mercy. Because, friends, the day of the Lord is not only about a great destruction. It's a season of great intercession. And I want you to notice that. As we look back at the days of the Old Testament when God brought judgment... I want you to notice that in every scenario that you can find, God first calls somebody to intercede on behalf of his people. Every single time. Anytime God says, I'm going to judge you, he also calls an intercessor and gives them an opportunity to repent and to be saved and to plea for his people. Because God uses people. He always has. Think about the flood. We just referred to that. 120 years. Noah's building an ark. But what else is Noah doing? He's interceding. He's telling people. He's warning people. Now they're laughing and they're scoffing. Oh, we haven't seen rain in 15 years. What do you mean there's going to be a flood? But he warns them. It's a heart of compassion. And he says, you're not going to have to die if you listen to God, if you change your ways. That's what Passover is all about. In Exodus, we know there were nine plagues that Egypt's ruler, the Pharaoh, had come upon his land, yet he continued to rebuild. But also, God showed mercy. We know that Moses warned Pharaoh before each plague. And if Egypt would have released the people, there would not have been any more judgments. And then there is the intercession that Moses told the people, man, if you just put the blood of the lamb over your doorpost, you and your household will be saved. When the death angel comes, when I see the blood... I'll pass over you. And that blood of the Old Testament, of course, represents the blood of Jesus. The precious blood of Jesus that protects us. God's always had an intercessor. He's always used prophets. Amos was used to warn people that God was angry, that there would, become, there would be a day of, of destruction, the day of the Lord. But Amos also told them, if you only seek God and change your ways, you'll live. We've read that uh, in chapter 5, but I want us to look in chapter 7 for just a moment, beginning with verse number 2, because it shows how he was interceding for them. Amos says, in my vision, the locusts ate every green plant in sight. And then I said, oh, sovereign Lord, please forgive us or we will not survive, for Israel is so small. So the Lord relented from this plan. We've seen that in other Old Testament stories, where God has relented. I'll not do it, he said. Then the sovereign Lord showed me another vision, and I saw him preparing to punish his people with a great fire. The fire had burned up the depths of the sea and was devouring the entire land. And then I said, oh, sovereign Lord, please stop or we'll not survive for Israel is so small. Verse 6, then the Lord relented from this plan too. 
I will not do that either, said the sovereign Lord. I am so great, I'm so greatly uh, appreciative of the love and the mercy and the grace of our God. Love, mercy, and grace always precedes judgment. He not only proclaimed the message, he also interceded with God to save him. But Amos wasn't the only prophet who told the people about doom and gloom and, and then interceded for him. And I want to talk for just a, a couple minutes about the most important intercessor that you and I have. And the Bible calls him the Prince of Peace. In Hebrews chapter 1, we read just a, a wonderful piece of scripture. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. I'm sorry, uh, Hebrews 1, not Hebrews 11. Beginning with uh, verse 1. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. That's what we're studying, isn't it? A long time ago. In a faraway place. God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, which includes Amos. Verse 2. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. Jesus. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, He created the universe. I don't have Noah interceding for me, I don't have Amos interceding for me, but the Bible tells me I have Jesus Himself interceding for me. Christ is interceding for us. Not Abraham, not Amos. It's Jesus who's interceding right now on your behalf to God the Father who will not turn his back on justice, who will not turn his back on holiness. You know what that means? That means, man, God could destroy us at any moment based on his holiness and his justice. But I'm so thankful that Jesus is continually interceding. I think Jesus uses the same prayer for you and me that he did for those who were at the foot of the cross. He's saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them. They don't understand that their pride has caused them to make decisions that hurt my heart. Father, forgive them, for in their luxury and abundance, they've forsaken those who are in need. I think he's praying that same prayer, Father, forgive them, because we don't know what we're doing. 
But because of Christ's work on the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, man, the Father is not eager. Listen, he's not eager to come and judge the world. 2 Peter chapter 3 is very clear. It says, God is patient toward you, not wishing that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. The reason God didn't come back in 1962 when my grandpa told me that I'd never make it to 10 years old because Jesus was coming. The reason Jesus didn't come there then is because of God's love and mercy to give more people more time to hear the good news of Jesus, the hope of salvation, the life that we have. Oh, what a great intercessor we have in the Prince of Peace. And it's Jesus alone, the Prince of Peace, that brings peace between man and God. It can be found no other place, only in the name and the person of Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have peace with him, he won't bring his wrath upon us. That's why Hebrews goes on to say, some of you might recognize this, it says he is a superior intercessor to any prophet, to any angel, to any saint, because he, the Prince of Peace, Jesus alone provides the, intercep- the intercession that brings complete peace between man and God. So that's why we can study about the doom and gloom. We can recognize it. But friends, we don't need to fear it. We don't need to dread God coming to destroy us because we have the hope that that day of the Lord that will be so terrible for the world will be a great day of victory for us. We know the day of the Lord will be destructive. And it was for those in the day of Amos. About 40 to 43 years after Amos wrote these prophecies, history tells us a massive army from Babylon flooded the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, he didn't send the pestilence. He didn't send the locust. He relented from those, as he told Amos who would do. But he did allow them to be taken captive and led into exile. Now, the southern kingdom, remember, Judah, where Amos was from, it wasn't until many years later, till it was captured, they, they continued to enjoy prosperity because they had remained faithful to God. Friends, instead of shaking our fist at God for his judgments, let's remember that he's warning us because of his love for us, his grace and his mercy. He's sending intercessors, people who are warning us, who are standing in the gap, people who are praying. God, forgive us of our sin. Heal us. But for you and I, it's a personal choice. We have an invitation to receive this life, this salvation, not only from our current sins, but from the day of the Lord by simply accepting Christ as our Savior. And we accept that invitation by making God what Amos calls the true plumb line. Or what I would call the true standard 
I know I'm going to be a little bit long today, but I, this is really important, this plumb line. We have to make sure God and his standards and his written word are the plumb line for our life. Now, you might say, a plumb line, what are you talking about? Well, let's look at this final vision, Amos chapter 7, Amos chapter 7, beginning with verse 7. And then he showed me another vision. And I saw the Lord standing beside a wall, okay, think of a wall, that had been built using a plumb line. He was using a plumb line to see if it was still straight. That's what plumb lines are for, if you know anything about carpentry. You know, it's like a string and it's got a weight at the bottom it's a, to make sure things are, are straight. And in verse 8, the Lord said to Amos, what do you see? And I answered, a plumb line. And the Lord replied, I will test my people with this plumb line. I will no longer ignore all their sins. The pagan shrines of your ancestors will be ruined. The temples of Israel will be destroyed. And I'll bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to a sudden end. Now, Jeroboam was their king. God was telling the people of Israel, you have been comparing yourself to the wrong standard. I've got to challenge myself and I've got to challenge you today. Who do you compare yourself to? I mean, builders to this day still use a plumb line to determine the straightness of a wall because it shows them what's true and right. It provides a standard. And God is saying to us today, I must be your standard. I'm the one in whom you're to judge yourselves. See, the people of Israel, remember, were comparing themselves to other nations? Something like we do today? And let's bring it down home. Sometimes we compare ourselves to our neighbors, our coworkers, that other person in the church that sits in that other section. And we see their life and we hear their mouths. And we think, well, you know, really, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> but you're making the wrong comparison. Because you're comparing yourself to a crooked wall. Oh, we might not be as crooked as some of the other people that we are looking at. But it doesn't matter. We fail to measure up to the plumb line of God. I don't care who tells you, oh, that's not a sin. If the Bible says it's a sin, that's the true standard. That's your plumb line. All your friends, all your churches around you, they can begin to interpret the scriptures to what they want them to say. But it's a false plumb line. That's why this is so important for you and I as individuals. Not to compare ourselves to others, but to compare ourselves to God's standard. Because God is holy and just and righteous. He's our standard. Not your friends, not your neighbors, not anyone else. God. I want 
to invite you this morning to ask God, how am I doing regarding your standard? Not the standard of my church, not the standard of my, you know, heroes in politics, not my standard of anything else. How am I doing regarding your standard? Because friends, the day of the Lord is coming. It will come. Didn't come in my grandpa's lifetime. It could still come in mine. Might not come till my granddaughter's an adult. I don't know, but it is coming. And you and I need to be praying for people who are close to us, unsaved loved ones, neighbors. We need to be praying for those who are persecuting us, as the Bible tells us. We need to pray that God will continue to be patient so they'll have the opportunity to repent. Man, even though we want heaven to come now, what's good news for us is bad news for a lot of other people who God wants in his kingdom. So let's ask God to be patient with us, be patient with others, to use us to share the hope of the life that Christ has for us. And let's make sure that we are measuring our life against God's standards. It's the true promise. Would you bow your head for just a moment? Let me ask you today, uh, just, a, just an outright bold question. <laughs> Have you accepted Christ as your personal Savior? He's the life. He's the, the intercessor for you. He's the one that will rescue you, not only from your sins, but from the day of judgment. And if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, I encourage you, I implore you to do that today. There's no magical prayer. There's no right or wrong way. It's an internal submission of your heart. And if you're here today and you've never asked Christ into your heart, I just want you right now, in a very sincere way, to say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of comparing myself to the wrong standard. I can see that by your plumb line, I have some work to do. Give me your Holy Spirit. Help me to walk a life that would be pleasing to you. Forgive me. I dedicate my heart to you. I give you my life. And the word of God says, no matter how you feel, you have been born again. You have become member of the kingdom of God. You're welcomed, and we welcome you. And as a church, we want to give you a Bible, give you some things that will help, maybe hook you up with a spiritual father, a spiritual mother that can, can just walk with you. So if you want to start your walk with Jesus, we're here to help. Just let us know so that we can walk with you in the days ahead. Before we leave, I just want all of us who do know the Lord to make sure that we're measuring ourselves by the true plumb line. Not by somebody else's actions or somebody else's doctrinal perspective, but are we measuring up to the true plumb line?
Do we have arrogance in our life? Are we concerned about the needy, the poor, the hungry, the imprisoned, as we are our own peers and neighbors? Jesus, show us anything in our life. Help us to repent, to allow you to be our plumb line and to spread this good news that Jesus saves. And even though the world will come to an end, there will be a day of the Lord. Your grace and mercy is here for us today if we simply believe.